today on Tea and Teaching. So it's interesting, when we started Teach First, I, you know, I probably had this belief, which was not true, that, you know, you had certain like types of people who you could just place them in a classroom and they'd, they'd be with a bit of training, they could be good really fast, you know, and then I could keep on going. I mean, I, you know, when I'm seeing policymakers in education, huge percentage of them did Teach First. And I was just chatting to one of them who's, who's working for the minister. And he said, you know, it really does make a difference. Like suddenly you have a lot of policymakers, um, advisors there and, and officials who have real frontline experience working in low-income communities and teaching. I mean, that has to improve things. That has to be a good thing. It would be great if there could be more evidence-based, you know, and I know EEF and some groups are really focused on this, which I think is really important. Um, you know, I think as much evidence as possible is always great. I think, you know, realizing that things aren't static in education, things can change. Welcome to Tea and Teaching, the educational podcast you can listen to with a cup of tea. I'm Arthur Moore, and with me, not as always, there's no Mike Carrawell today. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching, Danielle Finley. Welcome. Thank you very much, Arthur. Oh, it's a, so nice to have you back on Tea and Teaching. It's been, I think, literally two years since you were on. Yeah, very early episode. I was there, episode four, if I recall correctly. Yes, we were talking about whether great leaders have to be great teachers, and we had quite the debate. Uh, Mike Carrawell um, is, is working hard tonight. That's why he's not here. I haven't, there hasn't quite been a coup as of yet. Um, Danielle, maybe for, for people who don't know who you are, because I talk a lot on this part, but for people who don't know, do you want to give us the quick Danielle Finley story? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, I'm Danielle Finley. I am a teacher person. I'm part of the 2014 cohort, um, English secondary trained, uh, currently teaching Key Stage 5 psychology, that in itself is a story, um, but I have always worked in Teach First schools and very much dedicate myself to that sense of social justice. Um, I've been a senior leader for seven years now, um, a deputy, this is my fifth year. Um, I'm currently working in Anthem Trust in St Mark's Academy, um, which is South London, and my role is vice principal in charge of quality of education, looking at curriculum and pedagogy. What a CV compared to myself, ex maths teacher. Um, Danielle, do you want to know who you've been lucky enough to get yeah. on the pod? Because we're not just talking to you. I'm sorry, you're not the guest today. You're not the guest. Do you want to know who we've got? John, who are we talking to? Well, we've actually got the person I would say brought me and you together as friends nine years ago, whenever that was. Uh, we actually had dinner with him nine years ago because we've got the founder of Teach First himself, uh, Brett Wigdalls, talking about Teach First, uh, about the power of community. We're going to talk about his new role as CEO of Tiny. Um, we are going to have an absolute joyous conversation and we're going to reminisce a little bit, Danny, because um, Teach First has played quite a big part in both our lives, I would say. Certainly has nine years of it madness so everyone go and put the kettle on get a cup of tea get a few biscuits because we are going to be talking about teach first we're going to be talking about uk education we're break with adults we will see you in a moment welcome back to tea and teaching we are joined by the founder of teach first the reason i am in education take from that what you want uh Brett, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Tea and Teaching. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, our absolute pleasure, Brett. 
Um, for people who, for some bizarre reason, maybe don't know who you are, Brett, do you want to give us the quick kind of the story of Brett Rigdals? Sure. I, I'd imagine a lot of people don't know who I am, but um, so I'm originally American from Asbury Park, New Jersey, uh, home of Bruce Springsteen, and um, was a management consultant, lived in Asia for a bit, Hawaii for a bit for various things, and then um, was sent for one year secondment to London in 2001 when I was 27 um, and uh, would got ended up putting being put on a project looking at how businesses could help education in London because I'd done lots of work before on the war for talent and how businesses could attract the best talent. Um, and uh, in this project, for people who go back to 2001, 2002, there were many schools in London that were failing. Um, I could tell you stories if you're interested. I could tell you lots of stories of schools that I just think wouldn't be allowed to exist today, some really um, awful situations. And um, what I discovered was really the main problem was a real shortage of teachers in these schools, great teachers, but also leaders. And it felt like there wasn't a real uh, group of people who I mean, there were definitely people who really cared about these schools, but there weren't enough great leaders to be caring about these schools. And my thought was, could you use some of the ideas from the war for talent that businesses use, whether it's PricewaterhouseCooper or Citigroup or whatever, um, in order to attract the best people into education? And that made me write a business plan for Teach First. I then took what was supposed to be um, a six month leave of absence to get it started. I think when the project finished, no one was really, it was, people were interested, but no one was moving on it. And I thought, all right, I'll do it for six months. And my boss agreed to let me take a leave of absence for six months. And then after six months, I thought this is a lot more fun. And I did it for 15 years. And um, I left at our 15th anniversary in 2017. And then um, since then, um, I also the other thing I did is I co-founded Teach for All, which is a global network. So I had a lot of fun. I still, right before this call, um, right before this podcast, I was on a board call with Teach First Israel that I helped found. And I've been to about 50 or so countries helping get Teach First programs started around the world. And then um, the last few years, my two main things is I'm chairing National Citizen Service, which is uh, a great thing for hopefully many of your teachers, teenage young young adults uh, can convince them to do NCS and uh, talk about that. But the main thing is I created a child minding agency, which I spent 80% of my time on called Tiny, um, and we're trying to revolutionize child minding. So kind of covering all aspects of education in the UK yeah. system. Um, it's the, I, I've taught internationally, Brett, and uh, like there's Teach First for Thailand and there's the ambassadors that live out there. And Danielle, I don't know about you, but the Teach First ambassador is so wide these days. Like you can literally talk to anyone right. somewhere has a Teach First background. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm so lucky to be in education and the school I'm currently in honestly every every turn I take there's another teach first and it's a case of you know that cohort mentality is still really strong um, and yeah it's certainly a badge of honor I would say it's great I mean that was always the the dream was to create a movement um, you know of leaders who are really focused on education um, I mean I could tell you a story I was once hiking with my 12 year old son at the point in um, in Tasmania and we came across two teach first ambassadors like in the middle of the wild of Tasmania in, 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 you know, south of Australia. So, um, yeah, I see people everywhere. Um, but, but again, that was the dream. Like, I think, you know, um, how do you ensure that there's a lot of people who want to work together and, uh, really create change in education? Did you, before kind of that six month sabbatical coming to UK and all that lot was, was education always a, a passion, something you thought about, or did it just come about from that, that, that one trip? So I wouldn't say it was a passion. I come from a family of teachers and like 
many people come from a family of teachers. I grew up saying I will never become a teacher in a million years and I want to do something exact opposite and become a management consultant. But of course, the family you are born into has a major effect in your life choices. And my 17 uh, year old daughter is now telling me he'll ne she'll never become a teacher, but I, I bet she will at some point. Um, and uh, so I think that affected it. You know, it wasn't like a lifelong thing I was thinking about educational disadvantage, but I think when we were starting Teach First, it just became such an apparent uh, injustice. And it was one of these things where I felt like there is a solution here, you know, and we've seen examples of the solution. And there's many injustices in the world and many things that need to improve in the world. But I often believe education is a bedrock situation where if you have a society where some children have access to an outstanding education and other children don't have access to an outstanding education, then everything else falls apart. You can't pretend everyone has equal opportunity or equal rights even. I think it's a major civil rights issue. And, and I think as more I've gotten into it, the more I've believed that. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about like in the classroom, things we can do, pedagogy and how we can make schools great. But what you're talking about is like the system itself at its absolute core was doesn't quite work. And like that's what Teacher was trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone's any of you done this Myers-Briggs test where they say if you're big picture or detail, I'm a big picture person and I'm like 100% on that extreme. So, you know, while my wife gets angry at me because I often forget to put the dishes away or, or detail all the time, um, I feel like, you know, and I, I don't feel I have a major opinion on pedagogy questions often. You know, I, I have some thoughts, but, but you know, it's not sort of my main focus. But I think on system change has always been my main focus. And to me, a major part of system change has to be, you know, the individuals that there's, there's the famous saying that, you know, you can't have a school better than the quality of the teaching staff in that school. It's very difficult. Absolutely. And I'm actually going to challenge Arthur there because it's not was, it is. Teach First is still doing it and it's still very much alive and kicking. But my question, possibly slightly controversial to you, Brett, is do you think Teach First has done enough for that system change? Well, no, I mean, because the system is still broken, um, you know, it's a it's a long haul. I think it's a lifetime thing. I don't think, you know, it's going to change. But for a while, I was getting optimistic. I felt things were improving. And the last, you know, five years, maybe since COVID, it's 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 a bit depressing. I'm, I'm on the board of Fair Education Alliance, which, which I helped found. And, um, you know, you look at the data and things are getting worse for low income kids in education in this country. And you see other countries that have made, you know, really good progress. Um, I, I think in England, there's some really good news. So I'm an optimist. You know, I think there's no question um, the education system now is better than 15 or 20 years ago that um, more children from lower income backgrounds are getting an outstanding education now than they did in the past. So um, and I'll definitely argue anyone who disagrees with that. But it's not it's definitely not enough. I mean, there's no question that um, there's major gaps that exist. And not every child in this country does have access to an outstanding education. So there's a lot of children being left behind. It's still it's about getting great teachers or great people, maybe more into schools and into teaching. So rather yeah. than getting great teachers about getting great people into teaching, is that what that that? Kind yeah, of I mean, right? so it's interesting when we started Teach First, I, you know, I probably had this belief, which was not true that, you know, you had certain like types of people who you could just place them in a classroom and they, they'd be with a bit of training, they could be good really fast. I think quickly we learned actually it's, you need great teachers with great training and great support. You need all three things, like even the most, you know, there's always a few brilliant, like weird people who are just, you know, automatically amazing teachers without any any training or support. But that's like the 5%, you know, I think the vast majority need tons of great training and support. Um, but, uh, but I think there are some definitely fundamental 
characteristics of a great teacher. And, you know, I've always really believed in the idea that it starts with that um, intrinsic motivation, that belief that, you know, you can make change happen, that, you know, children can change, that, um, you know, there's not this sort of fixed point that every child's at. Um, you know, and obviously there's other things around being a great communicator, being a great planner, being, you know, lots of skills that you need to be a great teacher. But I think it does come from, start, has to start with that belief that children can change and children, you know, are able to achieve a lot. So one thing, I'm sure Danielle is going to nod here, or I hope she's going to nod. <laughs> as a Teach First ambassador, as a Teach First, one criticism I always get, right, about Teach First, and I don't agree with this, I'm going to point out straight away, but is, our Teach First, we, we come into the classroom, we, two, five years, I, I think the stats were, and then the majority of us leave. And I'm saying that as someone who has led the classroom, I get the irony, people. Um, and me and Danielle were talking off pod about all the people who we started training with and who's still teaching. Well, take away, like, there's still lots of us involved in education, but still teaching. And that's something I hear from people who maybe don't quite understand the Teach First processes. Like, oh, it's just teaching them to go do something else. Is that something that was, like, how, how do you come back at people who say that? Well, yeah, so I, I come back a few ways. I mean, I mean, the first thing is statistically, teach first teachers stay in teaching as much as anyone else, right? So it's not that if you do a PGC outside of teach first, you're more likely to stay in teaching and ours are less likely. So, I mean, we have 20 years of statistics around that and the evidence is there, basically. A lot of our people stay in teaching. But I also then ask the next question, like, why does it matter? You know, um, like, is that is that the goal? So if you're involved in education, but you're not in the classroom, does that make you a worse person or less involved in this mission? You know, we have lots of people who stay in teaching and then leave, maybe go in the business world and then come back and become a head teacher. I think um, I know it's a majority of the teach first investors who are head teachers have spent time outside of the classroom uh, at some point. Um, so, you know, is that good or is that bad? I think. I think it's a very old fashioned mindset and it just seems odd because, you know, I think we are all going to have these 60, 70 year careers, potentially, you know, hopefully we'll all live to 90 or 100 and have nice, uh, healthy lives. And we're going to have very long careers. No one's going to be retiring at 55 anymore. Um, so the idea is you have to spend that in one career or if you don't like spend that entire time in the classroom, you're, you're a bit of a loser. I just think that's such a weird concept because I think most professions don't have that concept, you know, and I, I don't think it's necessarily good for kids. I also think, you know, for young people, it's really nice to have people in the classroom who have done different things and come in and out and, you know, you know, and then I could keep on going. I mean, I, you know, when I'm seeing policymakers in education, huge percentage of them did teach first. And I was just chatting to one of them who's, who's working for the minister. And he said, you know, it really does make a difference. Like suddenly you have a lot of policymakers, um, advisors there and, and officials who have real frontline experience working in low-income communities and teaching. I mean, that has to improve things. That has to be a good thing, you know? Um, so, so anyway, I think this, it's all good, basically. I mean, my, my hope is everyone stays involved in this mission. If people do two years of teaching and they never have anything to do with children or young people or, or the mission, then I think that's a bit of a, a, a failure, but I think that's very rare. I completely agree with you. And I think just linking back to what you were talking about with competencies, what do you think it is that Teach First does that either develops or enhances some of those competencies that sustain, that, I suppose, that ethical purpose or that commitment to the cause? So, I mean, I, th I think we try, we try to do this. It'd be interesting. So I haven't been there for a few years now, but like we definitely try to do this very consciously. And um, I was always very conscious about the, the moral purpose and the values being very core. 
Um, and it always struck me that, um, and it always surprised me, I think, that many like teaching programs didn't have that at the core, you know, um, like teaching is an incredible job. It's a, has a huge moral purpose, values-based job, um, leadership role. And that has to be, a, I think that should be at the core of any teacher training program, no matter what, whether you teach first or anything, because that is what teaching is. Um, but then I think some of the other aspects with Teach First is we definitely tried to mimic some of the other um, like fast track sort of programs that the accountancies or um, management consultants have, where you know you get people into um, frontline roles pretty quickly because a lot of people um, who have this sort of skills and that sort of mindset want to you know don't want to take a long time before they get in those roles. That fe feeling of cohort, um, which we talked about before. Like, I think that's something every good organization does. I mean, if you were to join an elite military unit, if you were to able to join Deloitte as an elite accounting firm, whatever it is, there's always that feeling of being part of a cohort and having each other's backs and feeling part of a community of um, people who have similar values and mission. And that's something I think that really, you know, I think being part of a community like that is really important to people, especially, I think, today where, where many people lack community. You know, I think that's a real often problem in society. Um, and I think, um, you know, what we also try to do is really focus on world-class training, world-class support, constantly being improving, giving lots of different elements of support, you know, in different areas. Um, yeah, so I think those are like some of the, some of the big elements that, um, and I, I think, and another thing quiveringly is, so we just talked about is not like being negative about people who then do leave teaching, you know, that I think it's always been really important that we don't have the mindset at Teach First that, you know, you stay in teaching for 60 years, you're a loser, because I think that like turns people off. like. It's, it's, I don't think that's a positive thing. I think you could really be positive about people moving into lots of different educational careers or roles and moving around. So nice to hear, it's so nice to hear you saying that, Brett, because that's the, I think I've had that discussion, not as eloquently, I haven't put it as well, but I, that, that's what I've been trying to say to people. Danielle, I feel this is where we should go like 2014 cohort. Yeah, shout out to all those listeners. Uh, you actually married a 2014 cohort, Danielle, so you're yeah. the ultimate teacher. Cohort. So, you know, your children have to do teach first. That's like the uh, law. And I'm, yeah. English, I'm an English teacher and he was a math teacher. So quite literally, we have no choice. And I'm fully responsible for that marriage. I'm Thank I'm taking 99% credit. Do you know what? Let's take a quick uh, break there. Let's go grab a cup of tea, grab a glass of water. Listeners, go top up your tea and we'll be back in a moment with Brett. Hi, it's Leica Sharma here. Can I take a moment to let you know about my latest book, Building Culture, a handbook to harnessing human nature to create strong school teams. It's essentially a book for leaders all about how to create the right conditions within our team for sustainable school improvement. Now let's grab a cuppa and get back to the pod. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. We're talking all about teaching with Brett Wigdaltz, OBE. Brett, so I'm interested, you've now moved on to... Um, early years you've kind of done secondary then I remember Teach First doing a bit of primary and now we've gone back to early years so I'm interested like Teach First wasn't enough education obviously so why early years? So people often ask me what my biggest mistakes were with Teach First and I, I could go on and on about like tons of mistakes that are real mistakes but I think the two strategic mistakes I made was one we started only in London and um often talk about the fact it took us way too long to get into some of the areas that need us the most, like the Grimsby's and the Hartley Pools and, you know, um, Hull and all these other areas that so many charities, organizations take decades to get to or never get to. And I think, you know, I always regret the fact that we spent a long time before we, we went into some of those areas that really needed Teach First. I think the second big regret I have is we started just in secondary schools. 
and it took us a while to get into primary schools and then we really struggled to do anything in early years um, and the more i've looked at education the more i believe this is a major problem in the whole education sector is that there's um it, we have it backwards basically we don't focus enough on the youngest children and um, i think there's a historic belief that this is mom's job there's probably a real inherent sexism in it like why there's no logical reason why um, the government shouldn't spend as much to educate a, a one-year-old or support a one-year-old as a, as a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old. I, I think there is some inherent, um, you know, sexism in that. I also think there's some inherent belief, um, mistaken belief on the education, importance of educating small children, where I think um, all the evidence from the last 20 years on this says, you know, these children really need a, a great early years experience. It's obviously very different from sitting in a classroom at that age. It's much more around play-based learning, about learning how to work with others, learning how to work in a group. Um, but actually that's where so many of the neurons are firing and so much of um, brain development happens with very young ages. And you can see it that, um, you know, I've been to primary school classes where the children have not had a good early years experience, and these children are so far behind and potentially will never catch up because they're that far behind. Um, it's something I'm very passionate about. And then I think, um, yeah, I think I think the other element like of, of early years is, you know, if you're an early years educator working with a three-year-old, you're spending one third of that child's life with them. Just if you want to talk about impact, right? So you might be an English teacher in, in a secondary school or teaching year, year 11s or something. You know, you're a tiny little influence on them. You know, I mean, I'm sure you're important and everyone can remember their secondary school teacher who made a huge impact in their lives and I can. But you're not with them a third of their life, um, which, which uh, you know, a nursery or a, or a childminder is. And it is a major, major impact that uh, these people have on children's lives. And I think we're under-resourcing that, under-focusing on that. I think it's something I've really become aware of since becoming a, a father. I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old and they just learn at nursery just so much in like, as you said, like in such a, a big portion of their lives, like even the time they're there, like you just see these developments. And I, I know that's a common thing with parents is you just, oh, they, they've suddenly picked this up since they went to nursery. They've suddenly picked this up. And that's because I think, as you were saying, we tend to think of these early years um, educators as just, like oh they're babysitting they're just playing they're just doing but like they're educators as much as we are like they've just got they've just got different subject noise they've got different um expertise i mean there's no uh, logic like if you if you were like to come from mars and just kind of create a new education system there's no logic to say a secondary school teacher is more important than a childminder there's no and there's no logical reason to put that they should be paid more or you know more money should go to them or anything like that like like there's no there's no real reason for that, except some of our prejudices and, and you know, how things have developed. And to follow that analogy on, Fred, if you were to come from Mars and land on Earth and had complete control of our education structure, what would you do different? What would you do differently? Um, gosh, um, I mean, you know, there's so many things I could think of, like, um, I mean, uh, yeah, to start, you know, focus on earlier is education. So, I mean, there's no reason there shouldn't be, you know, each child there shouldn't have as much funding as a secondary school child and really like, you know, um, make that a real priority. Um, I think, again, you know, the more you could focus on the schools in the lowest income areas and getting them the best talent, I think uh, the best. Um, I mean, I, I could go on. I, I always think like head teachers are such an important role in, um, in English schools, especially. And, um, you know, I think the government hasn't done enough to really support heads and, you know, really give them the tools to, to be uh, successful. I think that's really important. 
Um, you know, I've gotten really interested. I mean, my new or my new company is is very tech based, and what we're doing is we're creating an operating system to help childminders. And I'm really interested in in some of the new ed tech and AI that can help teachers. I think, um, you know, I'm often a bit skeptical on what it does, you know, and the stuff that directly helps the the children during the day. But I actually think, you know, the main problem is you need to have a system where every teacher is outstanding. And just logically, there's no way we're going to have however many, you know, tens, hundred thousand, I think there's hundred, I can't remember how many teachers there are now in England, but like, we're never going to have that many outstanding teachers, you know, and I, I visit India, you're never going to have a million outstanding teachers, right? So I think there has to be a way to use technology to help um, people who could be good teachers or okay teachers to become outstanding. Um, and that's something which, which I think uh, there's lots of potential for it too. It's really interesting talking to people from the AI and tech perspective. We've done a few special pods on those recently and the people who really understand that technology they can see where this is going it's just maybe taking us as a mm. as a society we, we don't have the imagination or the that they do in that exact regard and sometimes i'm sure you found this but maybe that education can be quite slow to change um we have our we have our views that we don't like to change like even in like i can think of schools i've worked in where just to change the lunchtime schedule is like no we've always done it this way um, and this must be something you you found in the different ways you're working in education of like we like our preset ideas of what education is it's something we've always spoke about how how do we go about changing those big picture big picture blue sky thinking whatever you want to call it how do we go about changing those the way we work I mean, first of all, I'd say, you know, this is true of, of lots of professions, not just education. So I went for teaching in a different place. Like everyone, when you're in a profession, you know how to do something and you think that's the right way to do it, right? Um, and to be fair, I know in education, there's so many changes back and forth all the time. I've already now seen in 20 years, almost a full circle of, you know, educational changes between uh, different beliefs. Um, you know, I think it would be great if there could be more evidence-based, you know, and I know EEF and some groups are really focused on this, which I think is really important. Um, you know, I think as much evidence as possible is always great. I think, you know, realizing that things aren't static in education and things can change. I mean, I do, I think in education, I mean, I think in English schools, people are more open than in many other places. I mean, I kind of push a little bit. Like, I think, you know, I've seen people use technology in different ways and see people be open. I think, you know, sometimes it's problematic when you have ministers come every year or two and change what the previous one did and go back and forth, which I think adds to some of that cynicism, you know, and it'd be much better, I think, if there was more of a teaching led group that had um, kind of like with medicine that had, um, you know, lots of evidence based, um, you know, to make results. Um, I, I mean, so I could talk about it's interesting. someone I just saw recently who is either probably really unpopular with many of your listeners, maybe popular with a couple is Nick Gibb, who's been obviously a schools minister forever. And I disagree with some of his things. And I think he can be a difficult individual sometimes, but I, I respect him greatly. And um, I was just chatting to him about uh, synthetic phonics, which is something he's been literally um, single-mindedly, insanely passionate about for 20 years in a way. I can never imagine any human being being passionate about. And I genuinely think the fact that he just like forced it through the system has helped literacy in this country, you know, and I, I give him credit for that because I think it was difficult, but I think there's a lot of evidence. Like this is just one example of something that I think that it is evidence-based. You know, maybe some of his other things aren't as evidence-based, but there's one thing that is evidence-based. And, you know, I'd love to get the system working where the system did it on its own and didn't need some crazed minister to, uh, to push it in that way. What a beautiful political answer, Brian. Like, I like the way you managed to, lots of compliments there. Um, yeah, like, personally. I called him a crazy minister. I don't know if that was a crazy minister. You, uh, 
Um, yeah, but you've said some nice things and we'll listen to those. Um, it's almost like changing the education minister every week as we tend that's to do. Helpful. Maybe it's not ideal, but that's for a different podcast. Um, years, yeah. Daniel, I'm interested. You're um, in schools. You're a senior leader in schools. You've worked in many schools. Changing tack slightly. Like we we're talking about uh, the war for talent. Brett called it, which is a lovely phrase. I love that. Um, we know teaching is struggling with recruiting. We know this. Like it's how from your like the ground perspective, you're in schools trying to recruit. I imagine for September. Like what's it like at the moment? All the teach first applications are coming through, so we're actually having our placements. So currently, it feels a little bit more positive. Um. I, I'll be really honest, I think the last few years have been harder than any of the other years that I've seen. Um, I've been a senior leader for nearly seven years now. Um, I lead on quality of education and clearly staffing is pretty uh, important when it comes to getting teachers in front of your children. Um, I think recruitment in education is at an all time low. I think if we look at last year's Teach First versus this year's Teach First in terms of the number of people applying, we've seen an increase this year, which is really good. Um, but I worry about the national picture for recruitment. And Brett, I'm sure that you would probably echo that. And I wouldn't, I would extrapolate that possibly to a global market. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a lot of it reminds me of what 2002 was like, where we'd go to schools and you'd see the, the caretaker do a class and, you know, full of Australians and Kiwis. Um, and I think, I think there's a few issues here. I mean, um, it does worry me. I mean, I think one issue is pay hasn't kept up. So, you know, I would say if you had asked me, six, seven years ago, I would have said actually teacher pay is probably about right where it should be. I mean, maybe people would disagree with me, but you know, it felt like it wasn't a bad starting salary and you know, you could move up the ranks and get like a good middle-class salary. Like I, it hasn't kept up in the last seven years. So now I would no longer say that, you know, and I think um, the government's making a mistake by trying to, I think they're trying to fight inflation by my, my wife's a paramedic, you know, and similarly the paramedics too, you know, for some of these jobs, I think um, you see private sector salaries just jumping up. Something has to give if public sector salaries don't, you know, make any movement. Um, um, I, I think there's also the whole way people are working is changing, right? I mean, I'm working from home today. I, I worked all day from home. I just came into my garden, sat here and had a nice day's work and, you know, had a nice lunch and took the dog for a walk. Obviously, you can't do that as a teacher, but this is a lovely part of my job now. Um, and I think that is, you know, something schools have to figure out. I talk to a lot of head teachers who just say, well, we can't have, um, you know, um, temp I mean, I, I'm always thinking head teachers should do a better job at, um, you know, split part time teaching and things like that. And I think I think there's still often an old fashioned value, um, belief that, you know, you have to stay there for five days or else you can't get a job. And, and I think that's a shame. Um, but I also think, you know, there's also a lot of other opportunities out there for people. Um, so I think all these things together mean it's a very difficult um, profession to recruit for now. And it's at a time where we really need lots of great people. It's, it's so that's really worrying me. Thanks, ben. I think you know, it, it, I, th I think sometimes we have a danger of talking from a teacher's perspective around how difficult teachers have it, but we know that it is difficult, obviously, nationwide and particularly public sector. But I think one of the increased changes that I've seen in education over possibly the last five years has been around the merger of public sector roles within education. So the rise of social care provision now expected from teachers or the idea of kind of the medical knowledge that we're meant to have to be able to perform, you know, what would have been an old school nurse type provision within schools. How far do you think the new teacher training framework, which I genuinely think has done wonders for curriculum and pedagogy, how far do you think there needs to be further reform to better support new teachers at the range of responsibilities and duty of care that they now have? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I feel like I'm not enough of an expert in this, so I, I know very light touch, so I don't even want to give an opinion because I, I worry it'd be wrong. I mean, you know, um, but but I would agree where I would definitely agree with you, you know, is like I think too much is being put on teachers, you know, and um, you see that. And I think there has been sort of a, um, you know, sort of a, a tradition or it's sort of gone that direction where when there's problems, you just give it to the teacher. And um, but I, I think it's also not, te- you know, I, again, I go back to my wife who's a paramedic, um, you know, she deals with so much social work things, mental health issues, um, you know, things, you know, I, she would probably say when I've asked her, like almost half her calls are not life threatening paramedic calls, but they're going, the ambulances are going because no one else is there to support this. I mean, I remember recently doing a drive around with some police first people, which is one of the spin-off, teacher spinoffs for, for police, pe- um, frontline police um, officers. And um, what struck me was similarly, they're dealing with so much mental health issues, so much homelessness, so much social issues, you know, that have nothing to do with crime, except, you know, maybe antisocial, you know, antisocial behavior, because it's like, you know, and you just think, wow, so much of what they're doing is not what I would think of the police on the beat doing, you know, solving crime, they're actually doing things that you'd expect other people to do. So I I sometimes wonder, is this a a much bigger issue that like the whole wider, you know, national uh, care sector isn't working as well as it should. And there's a lot of people being, you know, falling through the cracks and we're expecting teachers or police or paramedics to deal with it when it's not their jobs. Essentially, it feels like we're just teachers. We want them to do loads more than they were doing five years ago 10 years ago in terms of social care and we're also not paying them to reflect that so it's the like if pay had gone up maybe at a similar rate or rate we would want like people would understand like my role the teaching role has changed but so has the the pay perspective but it's it's those two things happening at the same time it makes it very hard for people to like want to go into teaching even if you're you really want to be a teacher you really want to be a teacher it's really hard to think about all the other stuff you're going to have to do. And then like, you're still going to be short of cash at the end of the end of the month, the end of the payday. Yeah. I mean, you know, teaching should be a, you should be able to have a nice middle-class lifestyle as a teacher, you know, especially in, in a, after a few years in a, you know, in a middle leadership role, um, you know, obviously my mom in America, she was the lucky generation where she retired at 55 and has this amazing pension, which people don't get anymore. Um, but it, it felt like a, a few years ago, it was in an okay place, the pay. But I think the difference is private sector pays have gone up so much, cost of living has gone up so much, and teaching salaries haven't kept pace. And when people come out of uni, it's, it's competitive. Like, I know when, when I went in to teach first, I didn't, like, I didn't know I wanted to be a teacher. It wasn't like, I went to uni, I'm going to be a teacher. But at that moment in my life, teacher was the right thing for me to do in terms of, in terms of, the career but also the financial aspect in terms of the training in terms of going in and just starting in september and like maybe that's not the case anymore it's a very fine balance isn't it the um the employment market if you take a little thing out it changes daniel we were we were very similar times there no, it's similar times different perspectives possibly um yeah possibly a slightly personal plug but i'll shamelessly do it i i just think teaching is the best job in the entire world i really do and i will probably be that boring teacher who's still in the classroom hopefully in you know 60 odd years time I feel very privileged to have that role and I think what Teach First did is it gave me reflective tools to critically reflect on myself so that I'm now a lifelong practitioner and to me I know I asked you the question Brett and I'm now answering the question that I asked you earlier on but that to me is what has given me the absolute biggest gift possible to now work in education because I can model to my children the kind of critical self-learner that I want them to become 
so I suppose that's a little bit of a plug for the entire cause. That's so, beautiful. That so, makes me want to cry. Like that's really, really lovely, and uh, it makes me very, very happy to hear that. I'd say. I, I was I was thinking about this earlier and reflecting upon this all, Brett. Like, like I actually can't think of a thing that has changed my career, like that part of my life, more than like just that Teach First ambassador coming into my uni. I think that's what it was. I think they gave a chat <laughs> in the local pub that I happened to be going to, and I was like, "Oh, I'll go and talk." My mum, obviously, my mum was a teacher because we all have to have teachers in our lives, um, and like that's that's led to so many possibilities. I've taught abroad, and I did that. I only managed to live abroad because I was a trained teacher because of Teach First. And like, I live the life I live now as a tutor because of Teach First. And like, my wife's a teacher in the classroom and we can still talk about that because of Teach First and all these people coming through. And it's so interesting what you were saying, like the amount of people you bump into that are Teach Firsters. Like we've had it on the pod and halfway through the pod, we've been like, oh, how'd you get into teaching? Oh, Lucy Crean was like, oh yeah, I was Teach First. I was like, what? Yeah, I remember Lucy. I could tell you stories about Lucy. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. Like we, we we're bonded from that moment. Um, so I think like I'm not going to go too soppy, but I think that's a I think that's a thank you to you, Brett, because like that does kind of come from you. Oh well, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously there are lots of people involved. It wasn't just me, so I don't want to. No, it's just you, know, you, day in, day out, at the desk, sorting it yeah. all. No, it is amazing. I mean, and I, you know, but I genuinely, genuinely feel so proud of the fact. I think there's, you know, twenty thousand something teachers who have gone through Teach First, and you know, you just know there's like hundreds of thousands, million children, young people whose lives have been affected by those people. You know, and again, it's this incredible um, positive change, which you know, I just hope can continue and grow even more. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's at a time when so much in society is falling apart. I think it's, it's teachers who bring it together. So um, that's really When we important. get in that first Teach First Prime Minister, I remember that being spoken about when we were being <laughs> inducted, like, when's that, when's that happening, Brett? <laughs> I mean, the worry, it's funny, um, some of the Teach For All other sister countries have had ministers of education who were their Teach First alumni. I know three now. What's interesting is once they get into that role, though, they kind of forget. So far, those three have forgotten about being teach. Like, you know, they don't. It's funny. They get into the whole political. And so it hasn't worked so far. So I'm hoping when we do get our um, ambassadors who are ministers or, you know, prime minister or in those senior political roles, they always remember um, what it was like to be a frontline teacher and always remember, you know, the mission and the values um, of Teach First. Um, and hopefully that stays front of center. Yeah, what a what a moment that will be where they stand and go, I was a teach firster and I'm cutting all pay and funding from teaching. That'll be the moment we realise something went wrong. Brett, it's been fantastic having you on the pod. It's been a, like me and Danielle off pod had a lovely reflective chat today about teach first. Um, so that was really nice. Um, if people are interested in finding out more about you, what you do and about Tiny and all that, like where do they go? What do they do? Well, the Tiny website, if, if anyone wants to become a childminder or uh, needs a childminder, come on Tiny, which is T-I-N-E-Y.co. That's our website. Um, I guess I'm on Twitter under Wigdorts or LinkedIn, Brett Wigdorts. Yeah, just do a bit of Googling and everything comes up. Yeah, you up. should find me. I'm the only um, Wigdorts in England, me and my family, so it's not hard to find. And um, I suppose if you're interested in Teach First, just Google Teach First. Teach quite first. Lots, quite a lot of stuff comes up. Yeah, um so it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the pod um brett really appreciate your time thanks thanks listeners will be back in a moment 
and welcome back to Teen Teaching. Arthur, come on, give me your takeaways, please. Firstly, like, it's so weird talking to Brett, who I'm I'm sure got me into education. Like, without him, I'm not a teacher. I'm not doing any of this. So I think, like, I just want to say thank you, Brett, like, um, for giving up your time for the pod. Not thank you for getting Arthur more into education. That sounds a bit high thing. Um, he said very early on, it kept coming back throughout the pod of... of getting great people into teaching, making great teachers, outstanding teacher. He called it the war for talent. Um, and that really got me thinking about like, how do we make teaching, educating the profession that people want to go into? How do we go and get those great people and train them to be great teachers and great educators? Um, and I think calling it a war for talent is a really nice way of putting it and kind of really putting a nail on the head of what it actually is. What about for you? And yeah, what, what was your key takeaway? I think my first takeaway is, you know, from all those many years ago when we were privileged enough to have dinner with Brett, he's not changed at all. Um, I think that genuine intrinsic moral purpose is still really present. And I think it was a really lovely spin on those who stay in education from Teach First, but also those who possibly go into slightly other fields. And yet retaining that sense of moral purpose is what binds that community together. And more generally binds the educational community together regardless of what you teach first so i've kind of come away feeling really proud actually and proud to work within that industry and really hopeful that that, that morality can can kind of foster and be nurtured and that you know no matter what the issues might be with recruitment and education at the moment actually we've got a really strong set of values and that's what's got to report he talked about the power of cohort didn't he and that it's not something i'd really thought about but there is something about when you see another teach first star, and this is true in all, this is so true in other industries when you talk to people of like, you've got that bond because you know you've shared something and you know you're working towards. And it's, we spoke about how teach first, like, oh, te not every teach first stays in the classroom forever. Um, like, what a travesty. But like, there's so many people I can think of who we train with who maybe aren't in the classroom, but are still involved in education. Um, I can think of one person like Alex. I'll shout out Alex. Like there's someone who was an awesome teacher. I had the privilege of training with him. He's outside the classroom and he is still working within the world of education. Like he may not be in the classroom teaching soccer toa, but he's still like, he's still making a, an impact on education in this country. Definitely. He's probably still finding a way to teach soccer toa, but this time through a management consultant lens, but yeah, definitely. And I think that's exactly what I'm talking about is I feel as though that cohort is now, managed to actually broaden that sphere of influence. Um, but if we take it back to education for a minute, um, I look at my current team, the leadership team, and bar to all of us are Teach First. And that is spanning many, many different year cohorts, but actually that cohort is really powerful. And I look at the number of people in the school that I teach in, and it is absolutely a Teach First school in terms of the demographic that we serve and you know the, the ethos that we have. But we use the analogy at my school around moving as a murmuration of starlings because we read our social cues and we respond to our behaviours. And so much of that is rooted in the Teach First ethos. And I wonder if our senior leadership wasn't so Teach First dominant, if we would still have that same ethos or for it to manifest, I suppose, in, in that way, because it seems so natural given our training. Yeah, it'd be, like, it'd be so interesting to see a world, like where, where are we without Teach First? Um, I'm sure there's people listening to this pod who have got Teach First as start in September. Maybe it's their first cohort or their 10th or 11th or whatever. Um, so good luck to all there. Anyone involved in Teach First come September because it's, uh, it's a joyous occasion. Um, 
listeners, it's been an absolute pleasure sharing this conversation with you. Um, Daniel, thank you for coming back and taking Mike Harrell's seat and doing a far better job than he could have ever dreamed. I was going to say, it's quite a comfortable seat. I quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, watch out. Mike, watch out. Um, <laughs> listeners, let us know what you think of our chat with Brett. Let us know your uh, thoughts on Teach First and Tiny, and we'll speak to you next time. For now, I've been Arthur. She's been Danielle. We'll speak to you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tea and Teaching. If you've enjoyed the content of this episode, please feel free to share it with other educators. And if you're able to, please leave a review on the platform. And as always, thank you for listening to Tea and Teaching.